Hey everyone, welcome to one of our first bonus episodes. This one is going to be about starting your garden. Based on recent events with all of the COVID-19 scare going around and um, there's been an increased interest in people becoming more self-reliant and self-sufficient. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to come on here and put out some bonus episodes for everyone um, that will go more into detail into how to get started with that. So to get started, I would suggest that everyone starts composting. Composting is where you take all your all your kitchen scraps like veggie and fruit scraps, eggshells, coffee grounds. You can even throw in there like the pasta, grains, and breads without any dressing or oil on them. And you can also compost all your yard waste like leaves, grass clippings, animal manure, chicken, goat, cow, horse. Um, guinea pig and bunny manure are different in that they can be added straight to your garden beds, but all other animal manure has to be composted for at least six months or it'll be too hot which means that all the nitrogen and the manure will burn your plants. You can also compost hay and straw as well. You can compost all non-glossy newspaper, cardboard, toilet paper, and paper towel rolls. And if you used unbleached paper towels, you can toss those in too. You can even start collecting scraps from friends and neighbors, family, because you can never have too much compost. Um, And compost is about maintaining a ratio of browns, your carbon sources. Those would be the dry leaves, wood chips, shredded paper, non-glossy newspaper, non-glossy cardboard, um, torn up paper, towel rolls, toilet paper rolls, straw and hay, egg cartons, and the breads and pastas. Those are all considered browns. And then your greens, which are your nitrogen sources, those are like your food scraps, your fruit and veggie uh, scraps, your coffee grounds, coffee filters, tea bags, eggshells, grass clippings, manure, and you can even do weeds without seed heads. The reason you don't want the weed seeds is because then they will spread when you spread your compost. If you get really good at composting, you can start composting weeds with seed heads on them, but you have to make sure that your compost gets hot enough to kill off those weed seeds. So until you get more comfortable and you get more advanced with your composting skills, I would recommend leaving those ones out. If you have chickens or you have goats, you can give your weeds to them and they will take care of those for you. Now, if you listen to episode two of the podcast, I talk about how I use a method called Bakashi composting. And this is really nice, um, if, especially if you live in like an apartment or maybe you don't have a huge yard and you have neighbors nearby. Um, the nice thing about Bakashi composting is most of it is done inside. Now, I need to specify that when... You have your Bakashi bin, you fill it with scraps, you put your Bakashi brand on your scraps, it ferments it. That is called pre-compost. So that will not turn to soil, but it conditions the scraps. Um, It helps them break down faster so that when you do put it in your compost bin or a garden bed, it will break down so much quicker. I mean, I've seen it completely break down in about a month. Sometimes some things will take longer, like avocado pits or citrus or banana peels. There are a few things that do take longer to break down, but most of the stuff breaks down super fast. And so it's really nice. And I kind of like to think about Bakashi composting is almost like kombucha for your soil because it's fermented, right? And everyone knows like it's becoming more well-known the benefits of 
eating fermented stuff. And um, so I just like to think of it as I'm giving my soil those beneficial bacteria. And um, it's basically, you know, it's the kombucha for the soil. So look into that. I provided a link in the show notes on episode two um, for how to get started with Bakashi composting, but it's super simple. It might sound kind of complicated, might feel complicated, but once you get going with it, you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, this is so simple. So if you are kind of struggling at all with figuring out how the heck you start composting, I would look into that. Um, It just requires that you have like, I use a five gallon bucket. You want two five gallon buckets. And um, the way we did it is we just got like the plastic uh, buckets from, I think it was Walmart. So we had four total because you want to take one, drill holes in the bottom so there's drainage, stick it in another one so that the drainage, like the, the compost tea basically drips out of the first bucket into the second bucket and then you can drain it off from the second bucket. And so you will keep that in your pantry and you will fill that up and ours usually takes about a month to fill up. You do have to drain the liquid off every few days. But then when that one is sitting out on like your porch or your garage or whatever for two weeks before you can dump it into your bed or your compost bin, you have a second bucket system ready to go to start filling up. So you don't have anything causing you to fall behind on your composting or anything like that. So that's what we used. You can buy bins that are already made for this. And I might honestly recommend that instead of what we did because when you fill up that five gallon bucket with scraps, it is so heavy and it's kind of a pain in the butt to have to haul it all outside and drain out the liquid and haul it back inside. So just for sake of ease, maybe go with one that has the spout at the bottom and you can easily drain off the liquid. But like I said, it is it is pre-composting, like it will not turn to soil. I know a lot of people were confused about that when Bakashi kind of became more mainstream. Um, so that's a really important thing to remember is that it still has to have that contact with soil in order to fully break down. Another way to compost is using worms. It's called vermicomposting. And that is actually really nice because if you'll, I'll talk about this later, but worm castings, which is worm poop, is super beneficial for gardens. Like it's, I mean, if you think about it, earthworms are naturally in the ground in, you know, normal ecosystems. And what they do is they eat everything around them and they turn it to worm castings and it's super nutrient dense. It actually is like a fertilizer. And um, in the summertime, it can retain a ton of water, which for us in Southern Utah is critical. We want to be able to keep as much water in our beds as possible. And so the worm castings really help with that. And worms can actually, they can eat just about any of your food scraps. You want to keep out like the smelly ones, like um, garlic, they don't, garlic and onions and citrus. Don't put that in your vermicomposting, Um, but they can actually handle a lot. And you can even throw in there your newspapers and your eggshell cartons and they'll take care of that for you. And that will by itself become a usable resource for your plants. So like you, if you live in an apartment or like a townhouse and you don't have access to a yard, you don't have someone who can take your compost, I would look into vermicomposting. It might seem a little gross. It might seem weird, but honestly, I was grossed out at first and I didn't really want to touch the worms. And now I've gotten over it. I love them. Even my almost three-year-old daughter is obsessed with the worms. She thinks they are adorable 
and she wants to give them kisses. So it, it might seem a little weird at first, but you'll get over it. And they even, there's a compost tea that they make. It's the, the worm casting like tea and your plants will love it. So that's a really good option for those who live in apartments and townhouses. So even if you don't like I have a composting bin, I have a huge backyard, and I still do it because I want the worm castings. So anyway, so moving on. So next, you're going to want to select a spot in your yard that has good morning light, and ideally you would get some shade in the afternoon sun, especially here in southern Utah. The afternoon sun is killer for plants in the summertime. Um, most fruiting plants like tomatoes, bell peppers, squashes, they need like six to eight hours of full sun a day. So And again, one thing that is tricky about tomatoes and bell peppers is that when I think when it gets above like 90 degrees, their pollen goes sterile. And so I am going to be experimenting this year with a few things to try and be able to grow tomatoes and bell peppers later into the season because, I mean, it gets above 90 degrees geez what in like june so i'm going to be experimenting with like shade cloth planting sunflowers next to them so they're shaded in the afternoon i'm going to try maybe hand pollinating early in the morning before it gets up to 90 degrees i don't know if it's going to work but i'm just going to experiment and i'll let you know how it goes so plants like lettuce spinach broccoli cauliflower cabbage they like cooler temperatures and can handle the shade better Now, we are getting close to the end when you can even plant those because they really do not like warm weather. So maybe I would hold off and plant those, I guess, what, in August? And you can plant those like throughout the winter here because it doesn't get that cold. So if you do not have fertile soil already in your yard... I would build raised beds. So planting in the ground can get a little more tricky. You have to take a lot of time to build up that soil organic matter, which you do through compost, but it takes it takes time. The nice thing about a bed is you can, I don't know, speed up the process, which is really nice. Um, so you can build beds with wood. Um, most people recommend using cedar because it lasts longer. It is more expensive. And with how big I want in my garden, we went with Douglas fir. So far, it's lasted. It's done really great. I mean, it's only in its second year, so we'll see how it goes. But if you only want to do a few boxes, maybe splurge and do the cedar boards. Um, I've also seen people use pallets. You just want to make sure that you are careful with where you get them and what they were used for. If they were used for anything um, like transporting toxic material, um, I would avoid using those pallets. I think there's like a number on pallets that specify what they're used for. So I would look into that if you want to go that route. I've seen people use old tires, cinder blocks, even old filing cabinets, which I think is actually a really cool idea. Old stock tanks, that's what we used as well. Um, You can even use like the metal roofing materials, like the metal sheets, and you can attach those with wood. Those are really cool. I've seen people use those on rental properties and they just make sure they can take off the panels so they can move their boxes when they leave. There are so many options to build beds. Like Pinterest is your friend here. I would get on there, look and see kind of what appeals to you and get creative with it. You want something that can be deep, like ideally 12 inches or more. This allows for roots to have enough room to explore. So root veggies like carrots, beets, turnips, they need deep beds and they like more sandy soils. So it's also recommended to have about like 100 square feet of garden bed 
per person to supply most of your food needs for the year. But this also depends on how long your growing season is and your climate. So like here in Southern Utah, we can grow food for pretty much most of the year. So with the smaller amount of beds, you can get a lot of food out of those. If you're in colder climates, you know, you can look into greenhouses. You can even build cold frames like onto your beds. You can use like old windows for that. You can get really creative. Okay. Oh, one thing I want to add about the compost pile. So if you end up building a bin outside, um, we have a three bin system and each bin is like three feet by three feet. And so once I have one bin filled, I can move on to the next bin and the next one. And by the time my third bin is filled up, the first one should be ready to go in the garden. And I'm like, we are, we have chickens, we're getting goats. I knew I needed a large system to handle all the manure, all the food scraps, everything. If you don't have all that, you probably don't need as big of a system, but I wanted to you know have enough to handle all that I needed to handle. You once you do have your bin outside, you will want to turn it every three to four days to allow oxygen in. And I just use my shovel. It's a workout. I go in there, I shovel it all around so the oxygen can get in and help with the decomposition process. And then you want to keep it moist. So I will take my hose and I will spray it down before I turn it. And then after I turn it and maybe when it's really hot and dry, I kind of have to keep like spraying it down, then turning it, spraying it down because it needs to be moist to keep decomposing. You want to have it be like a wrung out sponge. That's how you can gauge the moisture level. And if it is breaking down properly, that compost will feel hot. Like especially like when you turn the pile and you stick your hand into where it used to be the middle of the pile, it will be hot. Even in the wintertime, when you turn your pile, you can see steam coming off of it. It's crazy. So that's really important to remember. Now, if it becomes stinky, that usually means you have too much greens. And then if it won't break down, you have too much brown in your bin. So just remember that. All right. Once your beds are built, layer the bottom with newspaper or cardboard. Again, non-glossy. And that acts as your weed block. And then you soak it with water. And then after that, like we added layers of browns and greens to create a sheet mulching effect. And all those layers will decompose over time and they'll release nutrients as they decompose. So like you could do leaves, manure, hay, compost, like you can mix it up. There's If you go on Pinterest and look up sheet mulching, they have a lot of um, diagrams and instructions for all that. Then once you do that, we added like six inches of soil to the top. And so soil can get pricey. See if you can find like a bulk source for it. This is also something to be aware of. I would be cautious about where you're sourcing your materials from just because if people use like weed killers, like the toxic weed killers and pesticides on their yards or hay, they feed their animals. Those can take years to break down. And that can end up in the compost and it can affect your plants. Like even if hay is sprayed and the animals eat the hay, those chemicals can still be in their manure. Like that has caused a lot of problems for farmers and growers and all that. So I would just ask and 
err on the side of caution. And if you can get, they have like certifications to where if a bag of soil or something has that label on it, that that means that, you know, they verify that nothing went in that um, and they're safe to use. Um, So I would just, you know, just ask, be cautious. But I would just remember that like most of the conventional chemicals that are used, they are biocides. And that means that they kill biology. And you need biology to have healthy soil and healthy plants. Okay, but enough of that. Once you fill up your beds, you want to top it off with about an inch of wood chips, because this is going to keep your like your soil moist, it's going to retain that water, which you need, especially here in Southern Utah, it gets hot. So like if soil gets over a hundred degrees, which they easily can here in the summer, like plants will go into survival mode. So you need to make sure that you can keep your soil as cool as possible. And two great ways to do that are covering with wood chips and then making sure like you do not have bare soil. So like that's where planting things really close together is nice because it will keep your soil a lot cooler because soil microbes, they can also die when it gets over 140 degrees, which can easily happen to bare soil on like a 104 degree day. So you need to protect your soil. So next, I would make a list of everything you want to grow. Um, they have lists of how much is recommended to plant uh, per person. So I would just, you know, really be honest and think about what's your family going to eat? How much do you want of it? I'm attempting to grow all the food for a year. So I'm going to preserve it, can it, and have it for the winter time. So I have to grow a lot of food. So that is really important and um, to think about. And I am going to be doing what's called succession planting. So that means like, for instance, say I need 40 tomato plants for the entire year to have all the tomatoes I need. Instead of planting 40 tomato plants all at once, I'm going to divide that up and plant 10 tomato plants four times throughout the year. So that, and you can do that with basically every single crop. Like with corn, I'm doing five plantings of corn. So it just makes it seem a little less insane. So that way I don't have to feel like I have to go plant like a hundred different things at the same time. I divvy it up and divide it at different times throughout the year. That also makes sure that you have a continual harvest, which is awesome. All right. So there are a few options here. So when you are ready to plant, you can either start from seed or you can buy transplants and transplants are plants that are already six to eight weeks old. Now, if you buy seeds, this offers you like so many options and you can have fun picking beautiful varieties, but starting from seed, if you are a beginner, this is your first time gardening, it can pose challenges because that's a whole learning curve in and of itself. There obviously are some seed, are some things that you have to start from seed because they can't be transplanted like um, carrots and beets and most of your root crops, those need to be direct sowed, which means directly planted from with seeds into your garden. But I mean, if you are interested in starting from seed, I can do a whole nother um, bonus episode about seed starting. But if you are a beginner, I mean, it definitely it's, it's so much cheaper to start from seed, but I know that can also feel really overwhelming too. So you just kind of have to decide what you want to do for this year. There's always next year, next season. If you start feeling really confident and you're feeling really good, you want to have more fun and have more options with your varieties, then starting from seed is the way to go. If you do buy seeds, you want to buy 
heirloom seeds. These are tried and true and they have a history and a story. And there's a reason why they've been collected and saved for sometimes like thousands of years. So you can also find a local source for seeds. Um, There are seed libraries or companies that collect seeds from small growers. You can try Native Seed Search or Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. They have a directory on there. You can put it in your zip code or your state and it shows you everywhere in your region that sells seeds. Now, another thing, a side note about seeds is that if you get really confident with growing and you want to save your seeds and plant them again for next year, that, especially here in southern Utah where we have such a tricky climate, your seeds will learn after every season and they will become more acclimated to our climate. So that is really important to think about, especially because if you buy from different companies that are all over, they are being grown in a completely different climate. And so sometimes I think that's why some people have struggles with their plants because it's kind of like a shock when, I mean, they were grown in one place and then they're planted in another. So there's also, I'd be really interested if people, if enough people here get interested in saving their own seeds, we could start our own seed library locally. That would be an awesome resource for everyone here. Okay. So if you want to buy transplants, I would ask around and see if anyone local is doing a seed sale, like at the farmer's market. If you know anyone who is a grower and they can grow extra and we can have a seed sale, that would be incredible. Um, if you can buy from a local nursery, ask them if they use any chemicals on their plants because, again, you want to avoid buying something that has been exposed to synthetic pesticides, fertilizers, fungicides, all that. Because, again, that can affect your garden's ecosystem. I like to think about my garden as I am creating an ecosystem from scratch. So I really try and be super careful about how I develop that ecosystem, what I bring into it. Um, so that is why I... I I say this. So you want to try and buy organic transplants if possible. All right. So once you figure out what you want to plant, one thing that is important to consider is companion planting. Now, I love companion planting. I think it is incredible because basically, I mean, okay, I need to specify this, that when you start a garden, like I said, you are creating your own little ecosystem and that can take time like we have to mimic I mean what like years and years and years of evolution nature does all of this on its own but we have to recreate that in our gardens because we are literally starting from scratch so that's why some people have struggles like the first few years of gardening is because they're getting that ecosystem established and when ecosystems you know when they're first starting out there can be all these issues that's why you have pests and you know weed problems and so just know that it's going to take a few years to really get it established and get it going. But the longer you put it off, the longer it's going to take. And there are a lot of things you can do to help speed up the process. So, um, but just, just keep that in mind. Just know that this isn't going to be immediate. You're not going to have the garden of your dreams the first year or maybe the second year because it takes about seven years to really get things 
where you have a rhythm, you have your little own little ecosystem going and it can kind of take care of itself. This is where like companion planting can also come in because this will really help because I don't use any chemicals in my garden. And so that's why companion planting is essential. So that is when you are putting certain plants next to each other and it helps deter pests, attract beneficial insects. And sometimes they can actually improve the flavor of each other. Basil and tomatoes are two that are supposed to help each other taste better. So like For example, this year, I'm planting oregano, chamomile, and nasturtium flowers around my cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, and that will help deter the harmful pests and attract the beneficial insects that can keep those pests away. So that's one thing I like to think about. If you get your garden going and you see pests, you see a bug like aphids, instead of thinking, oh, what can I use to kill aphids? I would look up, oh, what prevents aphids or what deters aphids or what eats aphids? Um, Because you're going to come up with how nature would handle that situation instead of what chemicals would handle that situation. So that's why I always try and look for what what would nature do? What would happen in nature if we weren't around? And there are so many resources for that, like especially if you look into like permaculture, um, they usually have more holistic ways to manage problems in the garden. Nasturtium and marigolds are actually two flowers that I'll be putting along basically all my garden bed borders, and they are both actually edible. So there's a plus. Another common companion planting that was actually practiced in many indigenous tribes here in North America, it's known as the three sisters, and that's corn, pole beans, and squash. And the beans actually climb the corn like a trap. The squash shades the ground to retain moisture, and the corn can also help shade the squash in the heat of the day. And there are, again, like so many incredible combinations for companion planting. Pinterest will really help kind of give you a visual of how that will look. Um, This year, I'm actually going to be trying borage and calendula around my tomato plants. And the borage especially is supposed to help deter tomato hornworms. Which if you've ever grown tomatoes before, those things are crazy and they are huge and they can destroy your garden, your your tomato plants. Okay, so moving on. In a healthy garden ecosystem, there will be a web-like system of fungi and it's called mycorrhizal fungi and it attaches to your plant roots and it plays a vital role in plant nutrition, soil biology, and soil chemistry. They create a symbiotic relationship with the plants and they actually form like a communication network between plants that can share nutrients. Um, And so having this connection reduces the need to add inputs like fertilizers, pesticides, fungicides. Um, But again, like establishing that mycorrhizal fungi can take years. So developing healthy soil does not happen overnight. Also, when you are planting, every time you put something in the ground, you want to add compost. And then so let's say you have your garden going And there's going to be a period of time where there's not going to be anything in one of your garden beds or like if you let it rest over the wintertime, don't just tear everything out of your beds and leave it bare. You want to plant a cover crop. So that can be like clover, peas, ryegrass. Um, You want to try and get a mixture of like seven to 10 different um, plant types in your cover crop. That way you have that um, diversity and that is going to help keep the, the fungi and the bacteria intact. It will actually sequester carbon, which means it pulls the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and stores it in your soil. Again, I can, I'll do a whole nother episode on the carbon cycle because I think that aspect of 
even gardening is fascinating. Um, your cover crop will also help you retain moisture and it restores fertility. So plants in the legume family, like peas and beans, they actually have the ability to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere with the help of bacteria. And nitrogen is essential for healthy plants. So that's really important for a cover crop to have something from the legume family in there to help with that nitrogen. And this is actually a fun fact. The only other time that nitrogen can be fixed from the atmosphere is during a lightning storm. Lightning actually converts atmospheric nitrogen to nitrates, which is brought down by the rain and can be used by all plants. So next time we have a thunderstorm, if you go outside and you notice that everything is like green or things grew by like what seems like inches, that is because of nitrogen. Because nitrogen is what helps the plants grow. It helps with the leafy green growth. And then there are also soil amendments. And this, again, this is going to help you kind of boost your soil fertility. And you can even try and introduce uh, the microbes and the mycorrhizal fungi and all that stuff. The compost, adding worm castings, um, green sand, which helps with water retention, garden lime, which is like ground up limestone. It can raise the pH of your soil. That's one thing you need to think about is if you need to get your soil tested to figure out what your pH level is because plants can be sensitive to that. The garden lime also supplies calcium. Uh, Rock phosphate is a natural untreated source of phosphorus and calcium. And this year I tried using BioLive. It's an organic fertilizer derived from marine byproducts. And it's actually infused with beneficial microorganisms that encourage expansive root systems. And so, like I said, it's from it's from down to earth and it's my first time using it and it's incredible the difference it has made. I did an experiment where half of my cabbage plants, I put this in the soil around it and half I didn't. The half that I put this on have like doubled in size. It's insane. So I would look into that. And again, like once you get your garden going and you get this ecosystem thriving, you really won't need to add anything to your garden. You won't need the inputs because if you do it right, it's really going to, they're going to create relationships with each other and kind of most of the time take care of itself. You will still have to be there to be the helper, but doing all this stuff should really help. Like, I don't think I'm going to have to keep adding the BioLive to my soil every year. This is just to help get that relationship established. But like I said, like plants do deplete the soil of nutrients. So that's why the, the cover crops, adding the compost, it will help maintain the nutrients in the soil. And also, when you when your soil is getting healthy, a good way to test it out is if you can dig in there, pull out a chunk of soil, and you want it to look like chocolate cake, and you want it to smell sweet, and if you can find earthworms, that is a good sign that you're on the right track. Okay, guys. Well, that is it for today's bonus episode. This was a little longer than I was expecting it to be. <laughs> But I hope that you found this useful. And again, like if you found this helpful, please let me know. You can email me. You can comment on our Instagram or on our Facebook page and just let us know uh, if you have more questions that you want me to answer about gardening specifically. We will be trying to get more gardeners and farmers on the regular podcast episodes to help you guys out. But, you know, if if you need extra help, please reach out because I know with everything going on right now, you know, it feels kind of urgent to get more self-sufficient and self-sustaining. And I really want to help you guys with that. So please reach out. Thanks, guys.